I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go up into the house of the Lord. As I stand before you today and look upon the audience, we are blessed indeed with a host from our regular membership, and we're thankful for the degree of health that we have and the capability of coming together. But we also today are blessed with a number of visitors who've come our way. We're certainly glad that you're here. We hope that the service will be uplifting to you, as indeed it is to be edifying to the name of the God of heaven. And we invite you to come back at any opportunity that you may have to come and be with us here at the Pippin Church of Christ. We have uh, various uh, bulletins available there in the foyer as you leave, and also a tract called the Gospel Minutes. Feel free to avail yourself of them. We'd be happy for you to take one, to use it, to share it with others. For the lesson this morning, you may have noted in the title that was announced just a moment ago, a bit of what appeared to be unusual. In fact, it may have even appeared to be strange. In fact, let me rehearse it with you yet again. The agony of victory, the thrill of defeat. The idea for that sermon title came from, in fact, the ABC television network. If you watch much on ABC, you realize that their sports broadcast typically begins with the wide world of sports from ABC, and their slogan is, The Thrill of Victory, The Agony of Defeat. And in the process of displaying that over the television, the thrill of victory is shown with a weightlifter successfully lifting a large amount of weight over his head and does so perhaps with victory shortly in mind. But then as they switch the slogan or continue onward with it, the agony of defeat, you may notice that they show a ski jumper who has a rather serious mishap. In fact, he crashes, and in the process of that, that amplifies the word agony that associates to it. As we think about that, though, today, the notion of that slogan used by ABC, you'll notice that I turned it around. We are not going to study this morning the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. We're going to consider the agony of victory and the thrill of defeat. And immediately to your mind, you may wonder, well, what sense does that make? Is there really any sense in discussing the thrill associated with defeat? Most of us, being aware of athletic competition, aren't always so happy when we lose. We aren't always so thrilled when we come in second or further down the line. But may I submit to you that in the course of the Holy Word of God, let's just discuss this morning this whole aspect of the agony of victory and the thrill of defeat. In so doing, we will weave an interesting discussion through the character of the Word of God, and might we begin in this way. These introductory thoughts, I hope, will set and establish in our mind that, in fact, the notion of the life of Jesus, the things available by virtue of it, and the overall arching message of the entire Word of God will, in fact, relate to this revised theme that I've discussed so far this morning. Over the next few minutes, let us then open the Word of God and see if we can appreciate more fully and more deeply, and perhaps like never before, the character of the agony of victory and the thrill of defeat. As we begin that discussion, we need to talk a bit about one of those three-letter words that so often occurs in the Bible. What about singing? We know that from the time that Adam and Eve made that choice to disobey the God of heaven, to transgress his holy and divine will, sin entered into the nature of the world. And when it entered into it, we understand that nothing would be the same again. 
You and I cannot so quickly point the finger at Adam and Eve. Though we realize that they did that which was wrong, we are no less guilty. For is it not said in 1 Kings 8, 46, There is no man that sinneth not. And later, didn't Paul amplify that subject so powerfully when in Romans chapters 1 through 3, he began by discussing the nature that God's power to save is housed in the gospel. And furthermore, the Jew are in need of it because they have transgressed God's will, but the Gentile are just as much in need of it. For they too, by in fact violating the nature of the things God has commanded, they are in need of the gospel too. Paul's main point was all are in need of a Savior. And to that he said in verse 23 of chapter 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us standing here today, none of us in this auditorium can thus claim that we need not a Savior and that we need not a means by which our sin can be taken from us. As we then picture the character of sin, notice what it produces. I've listed a few texts for your consideration. In Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21, in the days of the, of the ancient old, that prophet Isaiah shouted and loudly declared the word of the Lord. As he spoke about the nature of wickedness, he said, How ashamed it is. How ugly it is. What character is it that leads to unrest and turbulence? He said, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. Whose waters cast up mire and dirt, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. You see, being wicked then is a state in which no one ought to desire to be. It's a state of unrest, no, no peace to be found, no tranquility to be had. It's a place that's like that ocean when a storm causes its waves to be so turbulent. Isaiah said that's exactly the way the wicked are. To think about the character of the wicked, might we at this point interject a powerful note of promise? If the Bible ended at the point that we've just come to at this point, what a sad record it would be. For you see, while in sin, God looked down in mercy and offered to us what never we could have availed for ourselves. He came up with a plan of salvation. Let's notice some of the aspects of that plan and how it answers the dire and greatest need of the human family. Again, I've listed some passages for your consideration. You see, it was a part of the foreknowledge of God. 1 Peter 1 verse 2 as well as Acts 2 verses 21 and following where in fact it is there specifically stated that by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God ye by wicked and cruel hands have crucified the Son of God. Notice that God's foreknowledge had a part to play. When you and I were enemies and far distantly apart from Him, He sent His Son for us. Isn't it an amazing thought then to notice some of the passages that discuss how all that came to be? You see, it was more than a plan. You and I know that sometimes we may have the greatest of plans. Maybe at the house we have an intent, an idea to do some remodeling work or to accomplish some task. And as week by week and month by month passes, it seems to not get done. Maybe the reasons are good, but for one reason or another it doesn't get accomplished. Thanks be unto God, His plan was accomplished. It was not just a mere distant plan in the mind of God, but he brought the plan to fruition. For indeed, in the fullness of time, 
God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, Galatians 4, verse 4. And thus the time came that in fact the Son was in fact born. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, on the scene when that drew near, you might recall that God spoke with Joseph. He had already had a plan in mind of where he did not trust the sincerity and the purity of Mary. It was his intent to put her away privately, but however... God, by way of a messenger, spoke unto him and said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. We can see that God's plan was such that Jesus would be the one to save man from sin. It wouldn't come by way of various offerings and sacrifices. No amount of good works could ever accomplish it. It took the sacrifice of the Son of God. That's a fact, of course, we must never forget. It's not that our own individual personal righteousness can ever suffice for us to enter the golden gates of heaven. It took the sacrifice of His Son. But as we proceed further and further, we are inching closer to that title we mentioned a minute ago. For when the time came, Jesus did come to this low ground of sin and sorrow, born in Bethlehem, and in the years that followed, we notice his personal ministry began and he preached about the fact that salvation could be had. Forgiveness of sins was available and it would be through the character of his sacrifice. But let's look further at that as well. In Philippians 2 verse number 6, you'll notice in the verses that follow that, as Paul made that gigantic and grand statement, he so quickly said, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, what greatness was accomplished with the coming of the Savior. Paul there directly admitted that though equal with God, he divested himself of that and humbly took the form of sinful human flesh, though he never sinned. And as he lived this life, in all the humility presented, notice that God has now given him a name above every name. All greatness belongs to him. All preeminence is his, Colossians 1.18. Isn't it then fair to say that in Hebrews 2 verse 9 that he tasted of death for every man? We are well aware that ultimately the time came that some Romans, of course instigated by the Jews, nailed him to a cross. Have, do we often though pause to think that he took my place and yours on that cross? You see, he had no sin to be punished. He was hanging there for me and for you. Talk about agony. Now notice, there's a word, though, that followed that in the title, the agony of victory. As you and I are discussing victory at this instant and moment, have you ever pondered to think so powerfully about the fact that that life that Jesus enjoyed in the flesh, that he so quickly gave up on the cross, And the sacrifice that he made is the very means by which you and I have eternal life. Not life in the flesh now, but eternal life. 
consider these passages that help us appreciate the costliness and the agony that our Savior experienced while in the flesh and the victory that you and I have by virtue of his sacrifice. Oh, the agony that went along with our Savior's sojourn in the flesh. You and I enjoy so many luxuries in life, so many things that make our life at ease, but have you noted that so many of those our Savior never experienced? Let us begin then, if you would, in Luke 9, verse 58, when the Savior frankly admitted that the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. There is not a single record that the Lord ever owned a house. Not a single record that he ever owned a plot of land. He hath not where to lay his head. And he contrasted that statement to the fact that at least the birds of the air have nests. That matter then that would so much be agony to you and me, not owning a house, not having a place to call our own, our Savior knew all about that. But not only that, in John 8 verse 59, what about that constant agony in fear of his own life? As that chapter closes, our Savior had just taught a rather pointed lesson to various Jews in Jerusalem, and they picked up rocks and were prepared to stone him when that sermon came to its end. And miraculously, Jesus passed through their midst and went his way. Not only, though, in fear of his own life in that fashion, in Mark 3, verse 22, isn't it fascinating that here the Savior's eternal and heavenly teaching they attributed to Satan. By the power of Beelzebub, he cast out devils and demons. At that very moment, think of the insult. Here was the amazing Son of God, and yet they attributed what he had done to the devil himself. That kind of insult would not sit well with you or me. What about that agony? But yet we aren't finished, for in John 7, verse 5, even his own half-brothers did not believe in him. Even his own family did not accept his teaching, his claim to be the Messiah, the doctrine that he revealed and presented. One by one, every element that would to you and me present comfort was not available to him. His contemporaries, his family, even those in high positions of authority, all of them rejected him. But let's look also at Mark 14, verse 50. There were some close friends the Savior had. We call them the apostles. However, as the time drew near in that last week in his life, they had heard him teach. He had heard the revelation of his knowledge. And we notice that in verse 50 of Mark 14, on the scene of his trial, they all fled and forsook him. Not a one of them stood by him. Oh, it's true that a couple followed from a far distance. But who was standing there at his side to provide a means of encouragement and support? Not a one of them was present. You see, our Savior knew about then the rejection of friends. He knew about having friends that weren't there when you needed them. Further, we notice in Luke 22, verses 55 and following, that in the character of the crucifixion, where was it that they hanged him? Between thieves. As they hung him between thieves here, he was debased about as low as imaginable. He was the Son of God. He had made this universe and everything in it, Colossians 1, 15 and 16. And all the while, he now is hanged between common thieves. And as if that isn't bad enough, when given the opportunity of releasing a prisoner, Pilate surely thought they'd want Jesus released. However, they said, we want Barabbas. 
Here was a common murderer preferred over him. You see, when we start describing the emotional agony known by Jesus, the depths can hardly be plumbed. The degree can hardly be described. Rejected by every major class, friends, family alike. And even at the time when the crucifixion drew near, thieves and robbers and murderers were preferred over him. When we finally come to the last text I listed in Matthew 26, verses 14, 36 and following, we see an individual who, having endured all that nonetheless, appreciated that it was the plan of God. He said, for this reason came I into the world to do the will of the Father. John 6, verse 38. He said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and finish his work. John 4, verse 34. You see, our Savior, not for a minute, reneged upon that promise and the mission for which he came. But oh, what agony it entailed. Oh, what agony and insult it brought to him. But he nonetheless knew that the plan was worth it. He knew that the end result was worth whatever it took for him to complete the mission and to execute the plan. To note then that agony brings us to especially consider the cross. No doubt in your mind you've already raced to that point. I've listed just a few texts that will be very familiar for your consideration. Even after all these other insults and agonies were listed, after the trial was over, and it was a mockery, wasn't it? In Mark chapter 15, verse 10, as well as Mark 14, verse 55, we are expressly told that they paid false witnesses and tried to trump up charges against him. There was never an element of justice in it. And as if that wasn't bad enough, in Matthew 27, verses 24 and following, the leader of the time knew that he was innocent, understood that he was not guilty of those things for which they were desiring to put him to death. In fact, he even took a basin of water and washed his hands of the matter, affirming that this man was not worthy of death, but that his blood would be on them, on the ones there present. They, however, continued on with this desire for crucifixion, for the desire to send this innocent man to a cross at Calvary. Notice also in Mark 15, verse 7, we notice yet again the seriousness with which they proceeded with these charges. Here again was one who had told them he's the Messiah. He told them the Son of God. He had told them time and again that the prophecies having been fulfilled were witnesses of that who he was. However, the scene thickens. We notice that they parade before him every mockery of justice. They even, in fact, take off his clothes and put a purple robe on him as though he were some kind of a king when really he was. And they just didn't appreciate it. They gave him a reed as though it were his scepter and staff. And what's more, they even made a crown for him to wear. But it wasn't of gold. It wasn't of silver. It wasn't of brass or iron or any other metal. It was of thorns. They plaited that crown of thorns and placed it on his head. And then Mark tells us they took a reed and hit him over the head with it. Don't you know that it pushed those thorns into the skull and the head of our Savior? Blood would have begun to spew forth from it to run down his head and his back. Oh, the agony that was involved. But after they had given him that kind of treatment, then they slapped him on the face after having blindfolded him and said, if you're such a prophet, tell us who it was that hit you. 
our mind almost recoils in disbelief to think about the Son of God dealing with such treatment. And yet, he did not rebut them. He could have called legions of angels and destroyed every one of them, but he didn't. He could, in fact, have but given but one word to the Father. The Father would have sent any manner of pestilence against them, but he didn't. He endured the agony every second of it. Even on the cross, when they offered him vinegar to drink, he refused it. He wanted no kind of numbing of the effect. Jesus, you see, endured every element of agony involved. And furthermore, he could nonetheless cry in John 14. It is finished. The plan of salvation had been executed. The sacrifice had been offered. The things available to remove sin were now available to the human family. It was done. You notice that title I mentioned, The Agony of Victory. The Bible over and again describes then that in the book of Acts and the books that follow, when those first century preachers and apostles preached the truth of the gospel, they preached about the character of Christ's death. And they preached about that which it made available. But they didn't stop their sermon there. Oh, they may have made note of the agony that he experienced as we have this morning. An agony so great and so mighty. But that agony was overshadowed, if you will, by the victory that it made possible. The agony of victory, absolutely. Who is the victory for? It's for you and me. You see, when Christ suffered and died at Calvary, the life that he lived in pursuit of the plan of salvation and bringing it into existence, that plan is for your benefit and mine. He never had any sin. He didn't need a plan of salvation for himself. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Note the word suffered. When our Savior left heaven, when God dispatched him to this earth, he knew there'd be suffering involved. And in Hebrews 4.15, we quickly learned that suffering never once led to sin. We have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. The fantastic nature then of it all is that that life that our Savior makes possible for you and me is absolutely eternal. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live again. Notice those words in John eleven twenty five remind us of the greatness made available to us. The agony of victory. But there's another part to the title. The thrill of defeat. Let's open the scriptures and discuss that briefly for the latter part of our lesson this morning. The thrill of defeat. We have already touched on some basic aspects of it. But might I remind you, using the scriptures of some interesting thoughts as well. It appeared from the perspective of Satan that when the cross had become a reality and that the Son of God was dead, he appeared to be the victor. For after all, ever since Eden onward, the human family had been subject to death. The only two that had escaped it were Enoch and Elijah. Other than them, everyone else had served under the umbrella of Satan's club of death. Everyone had died. In fact, later we read in Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. The fact is, then, death was the normal, accepted lot of the human family by virtue of the nature of sin. However, 
when our Savior came. He too died on the cross, and thus it appeared at that moment as though Satan had won the victory, that even the Son of God had not been able to defeat him. However, three days later, three little days later, we arrive at the first day of the week, when in Matthew 28, John chapter 21, as well as Mark chapter 16 and Luke chapter 24, the record says that early in the morning they came to the tomb and they found the stone rolled away. And when they looked inside, the Lord's body was not there. In Matthew 28, verse 6, as those angelic visitors were there present, they said, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. And at that instant, the grandest of all hopes was vouchsafed to the human family. The club of death no longer was held by Satan. Oh, it's true that we each are still subject to physical death, but it need not be fearful like it once was. It need not be an overcoming and anxious matter like it once was. For through the eye of faith, we appreciate the fact that just as our Savior was resurrected, so too shall we be. And thus there is the promise of that everlasting life described so abundantly in the Word of God. I came that ye might have life and that ye might have it more abundantly. John chapter 10, verse 10. Thus, as we discuss about the character of the thrill of defeat, Jesus only appeared to be defeated. God only appeared to be defeated, but it was only a minor appearance. For again, on that Sunday morning, on that first day of the week, the record of the Lord's resurrection was abundant and clear, and He appeared to so many thereafter, giving absolute and confident assurance that it was real. It was not a myth. The apostles didn't make that up. Our Lord was really resurrected. Not many days thereafter, He ascended to the Father and still reigns at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. You see, it is an overwhelming statement of victory. And you and I can appreciate that what appeared to be defeat really wasn't and redounds into a great sense of thrill in you and me. As Christians, what great reason we have to be thrilled in all that's before us. I've listed some texts for your brief consideration. Jesus' triumphant victory over death and over Satan is amplified so often in the Bible. In the Old Testament, we began to be hinted at in Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. A refrain echoed in Revelation 14, 13. When blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from henceforth. On that first Pentecost following the Savior's resurrection, Peter stood up and with boldness, having been baptized in the Holy Spirit, he stood and with boldness proclaimed the fact that that tomb of David still has his body in it. But the Lord's tomb doesn't. He was resurrected and raised. And that very nature gives hope to you and me because just as surely as he was the first fruits of them that are raised, so too shall all of us be. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 24. To say all of that is to say that this thrill of victory, agony of defeat, slogan that we turned around to read, the agony of victory, the thrill of defeat, when we picture it from the perspective of what the Bible reveals about Jesus, we notice indeed what agony that he experienced in bringing victory. And though it was an apparent defeat, nonetheless you and I gained such thrill as a result and benefit of it. One last point as we consider what all of that does imply. The joy that was set before him. 
Notice the Hebrew text of Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which has so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Notice in reference to that which the Savior endured, the Hebrew writer describes it as the joy set before him. You and I may have often wondered what joy was there in the agony of the cross, but that joy comes in the thrill of the execution of God's plan of salvation. All mankind of all ages everywhere would be the beneficiaries of what happened at Calvary. Can't you and I then wear a smile and that proudly as we appreciate what we can be by virtue of what Christ accomplished? The plan of salvation's finished. No addenda to it are needed. No last appendices are required. Today, then, as we think of the victory, maybe it's time to amplify that word one last time in our lesson. Everyone likes being a winner. Everyone likes to be victorious, to be triumphant. And yet, as Christians, think about how easily that's accomplished through Jesus. Notice again these passages in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Now thanks be unto God who always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Paul, what do you mean? God through Christ always causes us to triumph. Those were Paul's words. And that word always is a part of the Greek text. It's not that we triumph every now and then. It's not that we triumph occasionally. We are always led in triumph in Christ. As we sojourned in through life with Jesus at our side, with our sins washed by his blood, we're always conquerors and victors. Isn't it true then that also in the text of 1 John 4 verse 4, as well as 1 John 5 verse 4, we are told that our faith is able to overcome the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Isn't that fascinating? Though the world may present many obstacles, afflictions, oppressions, and challenges, and though Satan may be as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, John was nonetheless able to say that through faith and the character of Christ, greater is the one in you than greater than he that is in the world. You and I, you see, are victorious in Jesus. And that's the whole message of the book of Revelation. Those saints that were found martyred and thus lost their physical life for the cause of Christ in Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10, were the very ones in Revelation 20, verse 4, who were sitting and reigning with Jesus for eternity. You see, our life here in the flesh is not the most significant. It's, are we ready for that eternal life in heaven? You see, if we end this life with all the world has to offer, but we're still in sin... We've lost it all. We haven't gained a thing. But if, on the other hand, though we may possess meager little of what this world has to offer, nonetheless, if we are Christ's and he is ours, our sins are forgiven and for an eternity we're blessed. Oh, indeed, this morning, think about what Christ's death and that resurrection also meant to you and me. The agony of victory, the thrill of defeat. Because of Christ's apparent defeat, but his victorious resurrection on that Lord's Day morning, our faith in that reality will redound also by our obedience 
unto the fullness of our resurrection to eternity in heaven. That should bring a smile to our face and an, and an unending challenge to day by day live faithfully to Jesus. These concluding thoughts might be appropriate to our lesson in this morning. Our slogan that we've used was a modification of one we've heard on TV, but one which the Bible encourages us to consider, the agony of victory. The victory that you and I have today came at such agony cost to Jesus, but one nonetheless that he seemed so excited to complete because he loved us that much. And what's more, not only that agony of victory, but the thrill of the defeat. Oh, it was a grand defeat for Satan. Notice that though he had had the ascendancy, at Calvary he was forever defeated. That should bring such tremendous excitement to you and me. Are you a Christian today? Have you let the blood of Jesus wash your sins away so that you can live faithfully and just and justified in His sight? The Savior gave all of His physical life for you. He demands that you respond to Him in humble submission to His Word. We know then that He has taught us we must believe upon Him, that He is the Son of God, that we must repent of our sins. We must confess His sweet name as our Savior, as the Son of God, and be buried in water for the forgiveness of sin. We must be baptized. That's where we reach His blood. That's where His blood washes the sins away. If you haven't done that, let today be the day, the 8th of April, 2007. could be a tremendous, life-changing day in your life. If you have done that, that is, you've become a Christian, but you have let your Savior down. You have not lived in open recognition of the agony of victory and the thrill of defeat. You have, in fact, brought reproach upon the church and upon his blood-bought body. Today, if we could aid you in prayer by, by the way of restoration, we'd be happy to do that. If either of these is the need of your life today, Brother Harold's chosen a hymn of encouragement, if we could be of assistance to you, don't delay, but let us be of assistance even now while together we stand and while we sing.